Awesome. Well, good morning, everyone. If, like he said, my name is Jake, so if you don't know me, um, I'd love to meet you after service. So glad I get to teach this morning. Um, I should say at the start, preparing for this, I, I had an idea of what I was going to be teaching on. I, I, we've had this planned, I feel like, for a few months now, so it's been a long time coming. And I was going to be teaching on the parable of the two sons, also known as the prodigal, the, this parable of the prodigal son. But as I was preparing on Thursday night, I, through some different circumstances, uh, I felt like the Lord put on my heart to teach on a different parable, the parable of the lost sheep. And I had already, I texted Andrew Poston already by that time, and he likes to prepare his songs beforehand uh, based on the message. So that had, well, I, I think he did the same song, so it didn't end up matter, mattering. And then I met with Andrew on Friday. Um, we were going to talk about my notes, and since I had changed it Thursday night, we met, and I had nothing ready. So I'm just like, I'm really sorry. So uh, with that said, two days prep. So hopefully, like the other guys, uh, I can squeeze out 20 minutes or so. And like Jay said last week, you should have plenty of time to get to your reservations. Or It's an early service, so other plans that you have might going on this morning. But like I mentioned, we're going to be talking this morning about the parable of the lost sheep. And this story has been a favorite in, in Christian circles, especially recently. Um, it reminds us of Christ's pursuit of us um, until he finds us. You might, that might ring a bell. There's a song that, that came out a few years ago. It's called Reckless Love, and it talks about the overwhelming love of God that pursues us, that fights till I'm found, that leaves the 99. And this parable, though, Jesus, he's also trying to remind those of us that have grown up in church and been around church for a long time that we're not immune to the need of his grace and his mercy and repentance in our lives as well. So I'm going to take this parable in three different points. So for any, any sermon has three great points, right? So the first one is the audience, the sheep and its master, and repentance. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. If you have a Bible this morning, if, or if you have a phone that has a Bible on it, or if you just want to listen, that's fine too. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. I'll start reading there. Uh, It says this, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man among you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. So the first point, the audience. It says at the beginning, it says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus told them, this parable. One thing that's so important in reading any passage in the Bible is to understand the context of what's going on during that passage. And so what we have to keep in mind is that from the complaint made by the Pharisees and the scribes, we can see that Jesus is responding to that complaint. He is speaking directly to Pharisees about what he's been doing. Um, In verse 1, it says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. From this and from the complaint made by the Pharisees and the scribes, we can already see that Jesus has gained a reputation as being someone who was engaging with and welcoming those on the outside, those far away, 
and those who had gotten themselves in a lot of trouble. Notice that it says they were approaching to listen to him. That's the sinners and tax collectors. They were the ones that were approaching. They were open to Christ. What he says was intriguing to them. For their lives, up until now, they were not choosing God. They weren't choosing to follow him. They were running from him. They were showing that in their actions. And he had something to say, Jesus did, that they were interested in. So when Jesus spoke, their ears perked up, and they weren't driven away by him. They were not coming to him with complaints and rebuttals. In fact, the ones who were coming to him with complaints and rebuttals were who? It was the Pharisees and the scribes. Those who thought that they knew God, the ones who thought that they were close to him. He was not afraid to pursue them, and he certainly was not afraid of what the religious leaders thought of him as he did this. When we preach the message that Jesus preached, it will upset religious people. I'm not saying that we preach a message for the sole purpose of appealing to the world. We certainly don't do that. But that when we do talk the way that Jesus talked, there will be those that are far off that are drawn near. And when I say that religious people will be offended, I don't, uh, I don't just mean like Jewish people in this context. Obviously, it means that or Muslim people. But also, it means those that profess to know the God of the Bible because that was the Pharisees and that was the scribes. Remember, they knew the Old Testament better than anyone and probably better than we do today. They had it memorized. Um, And what we see, there's a way in which we can know the Scriptures but not know the God that the Scriptures are speaking of. We can read the Bible and miss the point entirely. I once heard a sermon by a pastor um, that I follow a lot. I talk to Andrew about him all the time. His name's right. I feel like most of my conversations with Andrew, he's talking about pastors that we like to listen to. Uh, but his name's Ray Ortland. He's a pastor out of Nashville. Um, and I remember him explaining this concept of being able to read the Bible and not understand what it's saying. He explained it this way. When you read a newspaper, and I don't read newspapers anymore, so I'm taking his word for it. But he says, um, when we read a newspaper, we read the comic section as comedy We read an obituary as an obituary. We read sports for sports. But imagine mixing those up. Imagine reading a a comic strip as if it was an obituary. It wouldn't make any sense, right? You'd be, it would would make no sense. So this is, this was the Pharisees in relation to Jesus' message. When they saw Jesus mixing with and welcoming sinners and tax collectors, what they saw was someone approving of their way of life, not realizing that Jesus came to change their lives by his love for them. I'm also aware that in America, our churches are full of people that think that God is going to accept them or love them because of the good things that they do or because they prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, or were baptized, but they don't understand the message of grace that Jesus is trying to get across. This message, this story Jesus is about to tell, it's not just for the sinner, but it's also for the religious. So if you're here this morning, and would, would you listen closely, whether you've never been to church before or you've been to church every Sunday of your life, would you listen close because Jesus wants this message of grace to get across to you this morning? So whether you've heard it for the, this will be the first time you've heard it or, or the hundredth time, would you receive it again? Um, So that's the first point, the audience. The second point, the sheep and his master. And we'll take those in two different parts. So first, the sheep. Has anyone here ever grown up around sheep? Maybe you grew up on a farm, um, been around sheep before. Um, From what I've heard, they're not super smart animals. 
Um, I've never been around sheep, but my parents do own goats. Um, they've owned goats now for a few years. My mom grew up on a farm, so she loves animals. And from what I can tell, goats do have some similarities to sheep. Um, last summer, my, my wife, Corey, and I got to stay at our parents' house. We were in a time of transition, moving from, my parents live in Missouri, and we were getting ready to move here. And I can remember being at their house. It was just me and one of my younger brothers, and one of the goats started yelling. I don't know if you've ever either seen those YouTube videos of goats yelling or you've been around them. It's very distinct, right? And sometimes it almost sounds like a person yell, screaming. And so um, my, my parents' goats are just outside the house, so we could hear them. And uh, it, it's really hard to miss, and we could tell that the goat was in distress. So we both go out there, and we check on them. And as we get closer, we realize that the goat had its head stuck in a fence, um, what they do, the fence, the holes were just big enough for them to get their head through, but it couldn't get it back out because of its horns. And as I talk to my brother, he tells me, this is not the first time a goat has gotten its head stuck in their fence. And so I've tried to figure it out for a while. I can't get it figured out. We've got to wait for my dad to come home, and he cuts the fence open. But I'm saying all that to say that, that goats aren't that, you know, they need some help every once in a while. And, and sheep, um, from what I can tell, are, are very similar in that way. Um, the sheep are, not, are certainly not the most coordinated or athletic. They're not intimidating, according to a, a quick Wikipedia search I did, um, about their behavior. They rely on flocking um, and herding together to, for protection um, where there are predators. Have you ever asked others... I guess, move, have you ever asked others about what your spirit animal is? It can be pretty fun. People look at your characteristics and maybe th- certain things that you've done, and, you know, they'll give you a spirit animal. And so usually you're like, you want to be a shark, you want to be a tiger, a lion, something cool, you know. And uh, I was an intern at a, at a church um, in the St. Louis area, and I was talking to the other interns and youth pastor, and you know what I got? I got a golden retriever. So loyal and friendly, I suppose. Um, but you know what, what spirit animal I've never heard someone claim before? A sheep. Why? Because there's nothing special about a sheep. They certainly have some uses to us, but nothing spectacular. Think about it this way. They're not really going to make it on their own in the world. A sheep's not. They aren't the king of the jungle. They aren't devouring prey. Think about how Jesus put this story of the sheep. He tells of a man that loses a sheep and is concerned. Why would a man be concerned about losing a sheep that much if it could make its own in the world? It's no coincidence that Jesus decides to choose a sheep to be the subject of this parable. He didn't choose a more capable animal, and he did that for a reason. As humans, we desperately, think about this, as humans, we desperately want to be spectacular. We want to do great things, we want to be great at what we do. We want to be successful in our careers. We want to raise perfect children. We want to make lots of money. And I believe I've heard, like I said, I listen to a lot of pastors, so sometimes my quotes get mixed up. But I believe I've heard John Piper say it this way. We want to be made much of as humans. But we're not the ones who are meant to be made much of. So that's the sheep. Let's move on to the master, the master in the story. Uh, in verse 4, it says, What man among you, and by the way, so Jesus is telling this parable, and clearly he's placing himself as the master in this story, right? We know that. In verse 4, it says this, What man among you who has a hundred sheep, 
and loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the one until he finds it. So not only does Jesus pursue, but one of the most astounding things in this passage is that Jesus is willing to pursue even one that goes astray. Even one. So this shows us the individual nature of salvation, that Jesus cares that even one person would be saved. This is echoed in verses 6 and 7. In coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Jesus spends much of his ministry caring for individuals, showing them that he cares for them and loves even them. Um, I've been a part of a group of guys um, that have been meeting together about once a week. We've we've been going through this book called, uh, it's by a pastor named J.D. Greer. It's called Gospel, Rediscovering the Power That Made Christianity Revolutionary. And in that book, he addresses the story of Zacchaeus. Many of you, if you've been in church, you probably have heard the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man in the tree. Um, And reading that book, it helped change the way that I think about that story. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated among the Jews because tax collectors in their community, they were Jews themselves who had turned from their community to help the Roman government collect taxes. And they would do this with the help of Roman soldiers. So they would even do it by force. And because of that, um, and well, even furthermore, they would often collect over and above on the taxes that from the people in their community. And like I said, they would do it with the help of Roman soldiers. So they were hated. And often in the New Testament, they were named among prostitutes. They were named among sinners. You know, we might have a hard time understanding that. We think of the IRS, but, you know, the IRS isn't like banging down our door with soldiers trying to get our money. You know, they'll do it other ways. Um, So Zacchaeus was among this hated group. And one day Jesus came to town, and as he came through, Zacchaeus was up in a tree. And Jesus points him out and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And Greer says in this book, this is J.D. Greer in that book, he says, What exactly was said at that dinner party, we don't know. But we do know the effect that it had on Zacchaeus. He said, I will pay back anything I've stolen four times. On top of that, he gave away 50% of his treasures to the poor. There's no record of Jesus commanding Zacchaeus to respond like that. In fact, Zacchaeus goes way beyond the Levitical requirements of restitution. There was only one time that you have to pay back four times, and that was if you had stolen somebody's cow. So there's certainly nothing in the law about giving away 50%. Zacchaeus evidently just did it because he felt like it. So Jesus went out of his way to jump into the life of this tax collector, a person who certainly did not deserve it, and certainly did not deserve it on the part of the Son of God. Remember who was approaching Jesus at the beginning of this parable of the lost sheep? Do you remember who it was? It was the sinners. It was the tax collectors. This was Jesus's MO, the way that he operated over and over again. He pursued those that were seen as lost causes, and he does the same with us. He pursues us, and he even pursues you, even you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've thought about, how your family sees you, how far you've run, he comes after even you. And notice at the end of verse four, it says he goes after the loss until he finds it. Is is that not an amazing statement? I love that. He says 
he will not stop coming after you, not until he finds you. One last thing to mention about Jesus in this parable is this picture of him when he finds the sheep. He joyfully puts it on his shoulders and carries it home. Isn't that an amazing picture? It's not that Jesus went 50% of the way and the sheep goes the other 50%. Jesus finds the sheep totally lost, hopeless, and to make sure that the sheep comes back home, he slings it over his shoulders and carries it back. And he does it joyfully. It's not as if he finds the sheep and disciplines it for going astray. He is so glad that he has his sheep and that the sheep is coming home. He's secured the sheep's safety. He has. It's safe in his arms now. Our story of salvation is not really that we have found God. I know sometimes we'll say that, I've found God. I don't think that's a terrible thing to say. But the truth is, God is not the one who was lost. I was. I am the sheep in this story. Jesus is the one who comes and finds me without hope in the wilderness unless my master comes to save me. And he did, and he still does. I've stated already, there's a reason that Jesus chose sheep to illustrate our role in this process. What does a sheep do but receive from his master? What does a sheep do here besides run away from the herd and get lost? And his master, his savior, comes for him. There's nothing for us to do to be saved besides believe in him, receive him, and all that he's done, receive him. Has anyone here ever been or heard of Passion Conference? Um, It's yeah, there, yeah, holla. <laughs> uh, it, it's normally, it takes place in Atlanta. This past year, um, they did it digitally um, because of uh, the pandemic. And my wife and I had some friends over, and we, and we uh, attended it digitally, and, or virtually, I should say. And I can remember te- uh, a teaching from that uh, conference from a woman named Priscilla Shire. She's a Christian leader. She's written some books. And she was talking about this passage the passage from John that talks about the vine and the branches, the vine and the branches. Uh, I'll read from John fifteen four that passage. It says this, Remain in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Listen, because... You can do nothing without me. Shire went on to explain this passage. She says, what does a branch do to produce fruit? Nothing. Nothing except receive from the vine all that it needs to produce fruit. Receive from him today. So that's point number two, the sheep and his master. The last point today, repentance. Um, I read it just a moment ago, but in verse 7, it says that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Let's not forget who Jesus is addressing in this parable. We talked about it a little bit already. He is addressing a complaint made by the Pharisees and scribes that he welcomes and eats with sinners and tax collectors. He's not saying in verse 7 that repentance is not required of these righteous people, because it is required. What he's trying to say is this, you are sinners too. You are in need of repentance. 
What we see with the sinners and tax collectors is that there's nothing so bad that you've done that God is not willing to forgive. And at the other end, with the Pharisees and scribes, there is nothing that you've done that is so good that it earns our acceptance with God. It's so clear throughout the New Testament, especially Romans 4, 5, it says this, but to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. So with this in mind, what does it mean to repent? The Pharisees were, think about this, the Pharisees were the most righteous people. Their adherence to the law the rules that God had laid out for the Jews were unmatched. So what, what would a Pharisee have to repent of? By this, we know that repentance is not simply to get our lives cleaned up. It's not just to stop doing the bad things that sinners and tax collectors were doing. It goes, it's not less than that, of course, but it goes deeper than that. There are reasons that we each do the things that we do. It goes down to our heart. I've heard Tim Keller, he's a pastor, explain it this way. We don't only need to repent of the bad things that we do. We also need to repent of all the bad reasons that I've ever done anything good. Did you hear that? Did you catch that? Let me read that again. We don't only need to repent of the bad things that we do, but also the, all of the bad reasons that I've ever done anything good. You see, what the Pharisees were guilty of was trying to save themselves. I've, heard, I've also heard Tim Keller explain it this way. They did the good things that they did for bad reasons. These bad reasons were like to get God on their side so that they could control him. So they could get money and wealth or go to heaven when they die. And when it came down to it, their hearts were in just as bad of a place as the sinners and tax collectors. It may not have, it may not have or it may have actually been worse because they didn't see their need to turn from these things. They thought, I'm good. I don't need to repent. Look at, I follow all the laws. I follow all the rules. Think about the, the story of the rich young ruler, right? Jesus, he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, follow all the commandments. And he says, I've done everything. I've done everything. And, and what does Jesus, he points out something in his heart. You see, there are heart, it's our hearts. Um, and if I'm on, th- this was my story. This was my testimony. Um, I grew up in church and I accepted Christ at a young age. I walked down an aisle and accepted to pray, prayed to receive Christ. And even before that, and my whole life, I've always been a rule follower. I've always been, you know, I don't break rules. I, I follow what my teachers would say, my parents, pastors. Um, and I really went through a, a really tough season in high school and even into college where I, I really struggled with doubting my salvation. Um, I had issues with assurance. And what I realized in my doubt was I was trying to do so many good things so that God would accept me. Um, and honestly, I was doing all these things. I was, I was doing every good thing so that God would let me into heaven, so that he would give me a good life, so that I could have a good wife, so that he would bless me, if I'm honest about, about that. And the truth is, is I didn't love God. I, I loved the good things that he could give me. And this is exactly what's going on in the heart of the Pharisees and the scribes. So to wrap up, maybe you are here, you're like, or you're listening online, and, and you're like the sinners and tax collectors. You've done things that make you question whether or not God could accept you or forgive you. And would, would you turn from that today? Jesus will, not only will he forgive anything, he will come after you and 
show you. So would you ask him today, would you say, God, please show me this forgiveness. Show me this grace because he will forgive anything, anything. Um, and maybe you're like me, like you hear my testimony and you thought that God, God will accept you because of all the good things that you do and not because, here's the truth. Jesus came and he, he lived a perfect life he died on the cross. He rose again. He did all that so that if we would trust in him, we would be saved. Not because of the good things I do. Jesus finished. Remember, he says on the cross, it is finished. So if we would trust in what he did on the cross for us, we would be saved. So if, if, if that's you today, like, like what my story was, would you turn from that today and just trust only and rest in what he has done for you today? Um, and maybe I know many of you today would say, I'm already a Christian um, but if you're honest with yourself, you would admit you've forgotten this gospel message. You've forgotten that it is by, by grace and by receiving him day by day that we grow um, and come to love him more and more. So would you turn as well and embrace God, embrace his spirit, and just call him and ask him again to show you what this love looks like. Um, thank you so much for having me this morning. That's my sermon. Let's um, pray as we wrap up. And I'll invite, I think the worship team will come up. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for allowing me to speak. We thank you so much for your word. And we just pray that you'd use this message to show sinners and tax collectors that there's nothing that, um, that we've done that will keep us from you. Nothing that will keep us from your love. So I pray that even now that you'd be breaking that in on people's hearts even Christians who have done things that are still haunted by their past, I pray that you'd help them to see that that is a lie of the enemy and that you, that you would um, break that and show them that you forgive and you cleanse and you restore. And Lord, I pray as well for those that have grown up in church and have, um, if they're honest, they might say, you know, I, I haven't really trusted. I've been trusting in my own work. So I pray that you'd help them to turn from that today. And Christians as well, it is so easy to start thinking that we need to do things in order to earn your acceptance. So please, God, I pray that you'd break that today. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.